CMU Constitution Day uh, speaker. It's uh, the distinguished professor of history emeritus from Wayne State University, Dr. Melvin Small. Uh, I've had the privilege of knowing Dr. Small for a long time, and I think we're very uh, lucky to have him with us for this particular topic. He uh, retired after well over 40 years of teaching at Wayne State University down in Detroit. His uh, specialty areas included uh, U.S. foreign relations, peace studies, and recent U.S. history. He was also chair for a seven-year period of the Department of History down at Wayne State. He did his uh, bachelor's degree at Dartmouth College and his master's and PhD at the University of Michigan. And then moved to Wayne State University uh, and was there uh, for the remainder of his career, with uh, some brief exceptions, where he was a visiting professor at different institutions, both in the United States and abroad. He is the author of nearly 70 essays and articles that deal with a, a wide range of topics, from political history to uh, the news media, to public opinion, to the Vietnam War, uh, to presidential elections, uh, a wide range of themes that he's touched upon. He's also the author or editor of 15 books, uh, including the uh, award-winning Johnson, Nixon, and the Doves, as well as uh, a more recent book, The Presidency of Richard Nixon, for the Distinguished uh, Series by the University Press of Kansas. And he just recently completed a book earlier this year, a companion to Richard Nixon. So he's well-versed in the Nixon era, the Nixon presidency, and his topic, of course, uh, is uh, based on our current theme of the Constitution. And so his talk this evening is Watergate, the Constitutional Crisis, and if you would please welcome with me Dr. Melvin Small.
In the early morning hours of June 17, 1972, Washington District Police officers arrested five men who were trying to plant electronic surveillance devices in the offices of the Democratic National Committee at the Watergate apartment complex along the Potomac in Washington. Also arrested were two other men in charge of the operation who were across the street at a Howard Johnson hotel. The five men inside the office had present or former connections to the CIA. The two men in the hotel, one of whom is now talk show host G. Gordon Liddy, were working for CREEP, that's the acronym, the Committee to Re-elect the President. They made a terrible mistake with that choice of name, CREEP. The committee was headed by John Mitchell, who had previously been Nixon's Attorney General. It will be important to remember, I'll get back to this, that several of those arrested were associated with the Plumbers, a secret White House investigative team that was involved in the previous year's break-in in the psychiatrist's office of Daniel Ellsberg. I know, it's obscure. Daniel Ellsberg was a guy who leaked the Pentagon Papers, which were a classified history of the Vietnam War through 1967, compiled by Lyndon Johnson's Pentagon. Not by Nixon's. Thus began the Watergate crisis, the first of the unfortunately many gates to follow, involving scandals and even threats to presidential survival. Some of you are old enough to remember the salacious Monica Gate that led to Bill Clinton's impeachment by the House of Representatives. Well, the first gate was Watergate. Richard Nixon, who was vacationing in the Bahamas at the time, did not know, as far as we know, about the Watergate breaking, although he certainly sanctioned what he would call hardball campaign tactics, including Operation O'Brien, an attempt to obtain defamatory material about Lawrence O'Brien, who was the head of the Democratic Party, whose headquarters were in the Watergate building. O'Brien, by the way, went on to become the head of the NBA, obviously a much more important position. <laughs> certainly today for the Democratic Party. <laughs> The Watergate story involves two distinct parts, the breaking itself and the president's handling of it. I'm going to pass quickly over the first part, which does not directly involve the ensuing constitutional crisis. Suffice to say, as with any great historical event, there are numerous conspiracy theories that suggest the initial break-in did not just involve campaign dirty tricks. Some have contended this was a CIA plot or a silent coup to bring about Nixon's downfall. Others point to White House counsel John Dean, whom we'll meet, who allegedly ordered the break-in to cover up information that might reveal that his fiancée roomed with a madam. And that madam had an escort service who provided visiting Democrats with a little entertainment. I use escort service as a euphemism. And while I'm on paths not taken tonight, I will not talk about the other illegal campaign activities that ran afoul of the then-current election laws and sent several Nixon aides, including his appointment secretary, to jail. Watergate might have been a footnote in history, and President Nixon decided to make an announcement the next day explaining that several of his very junior underlings had engaged in an illegal and unauthorized break-in about which he had no knowledge and they would be prosecuted to the full extent. No, he used to do that. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm becoming more into Nixon.
this, and he did all the time. They would be prosecuted purely to the full extent of the law. Instead, he always, uh, I shouldn't be so, but I'm treating this too lightly. This is very serious. Right. Take that smirk off my face. Instead of making that announcement, Nixon immediately began a cover-up. Why he chose this route is open to conjecture. Now we go back to what I mentioned earlier. It may have been because of the 1971 break-in at the psychologist's office about which he had some knowledge and thus feared those arrested who were involved in that break-in might cop a plea and still beat. Or maybe it was because he was trying to protect his old friend John Mitchell, the head of Creep. Mitchell's wife, Martha, was a loose-lipped, boozy, somewhat unbalanced favorite of the press who might spill her own means if her husband was implicated. For whatever reason, Nixon launched his cover-up first by trying, ultimately successfully, to convince the FBI to refrain from investigating the case because it might expose CIA operations. Through his chief of staff, Bob Haldeman, he ordered the CIA to tell the FBI to lay off. Even after the CIA director said, no, there's no reason to do that. Thus it was on June 22, 1972, five days after the break-in. A month later, by the way, Nixon presciently said, told his aides, bizarrely, quote, if you're going to cover up, you're going to get caught. End of quote, Richard Nixon. The president also considered on ways to pay off the burglars with money or promises of executive clemency. One of Nixon's lawyers received $350,000 from Creep for assistance to those arrested, and he insisted that money was in a suitcase in cash. Nixon said, well, I'll pardon the bastards, as well as, quote, well, they have to be paid, that's all there is to it. They have to be paid, end of quote. He mused on several occasions on where and how he could find the money. Oh, you can get, quote, a million dollars, you can get it in cash, he told his aides in order to assure the loyalty of the arrestees. As for pardoning, he assured his two closest aides he would pardon them, quote, even the poor, damn, dumb John Mitchell, end of quote. He also told his aides to get those arrested to, quote, stonewall it. Plead the Fifth Amendment. And he offered them advice with his legal background, because he was a lawyer, that investigators later considered this advice suborning perjury. He said, quote, you can say I don't remember. You can say, I don't recall. You can say, I can't recall. I can't give any answer to that. I can recall. Okay. How do we know that Nixon really said those things? Am I just some kind of liberalist story and making this up as we all do? As we will see, the fact that Nixon employed a secret voice-activated taping system emerged during the Senate's investigation of the affair. From February 71 to July 73, the tapes were rolling in the Oval Office, in the Executive Office Building, the Lincoln Room, and Camp David. They were voice activated because the President, as everyone knew, was a klutz when it came to things mechanical. He never turned things on and off. He introduced taping to provide a better record for his policy making, and maybe for his future memoirs, and maybe to keep people honest who had meetings with him so he'd have a record of what they said. Previous presidents had done some tape, but not in the wholesale manner adopted by Nixon. He never thought these tapes would see the light of day. Ironically, after Lyndon Johnson told Nixon about his own limited taping system in December 1968, when Nixon was president-elect, Nixon said, get rid of the taping system. He didn't want one. 
two years later, he put one in. When portions of Nixon's tapes were released, we heard foul-mouthed, mean-spirited, irrational, tipsy, and occasionally racist comments that shocked the nation, considering the proper, sober, and righteous public persona of Richard Nixon. To be fair, how many of us, how many of us, or other presidents, would sound as wholesome and virtuous in private as we in public, in private as we sometimes sound in public? Does that make sense? Let me try it again. How many of us, if they were taking us all the time, how many of us would sound the same in public as we sounded in private? I think I said that. LBJ's limited tapes revealed a lusty and profane personality. But he was not especially mean-spirited or racist, and his private com comments conformed better to what we saw and heard in public. Back to the cover-up now, after we get the justification for using Nixon's quotes. The cover-up worked during the campaign of 1972, with the president elected in a landslide, losing only Massachusetts and the District of Columbia. During the campaign, two intrepid reporters for the Washington Post, Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman, <laughs> or Woodward and Bernstein for some of you, kept the story alive with little impact on the rest of the nation. Indeed, one wonders if the Watergate crisis would have become the crisis it became had it not been for these two rather junior investigative journalists. And here is our Constitution guaranteeing more or less free press well, it was a close call since the publisher and editor of the paper were skeptical of the leads turned up by Woodward and Bernstein. Moreover, they were threatened by the White House to cool it. Or as John Mitchell warned publisher Catherine Graham, if she didn't cool it, quote, direct quote, she would get her tit caught in a ringer. Just kind of a strange threat, is it not? I've never heard anyone else use that. More seriously than the tip threat, the Nixon White House threatened the license renewals of several lucrative television stations owned by the Washington Post. Newspapers, fortunately, are not federally licensed, but the airways belong to the government, or I guess, to the people. Just as Nixon was beginning to make wholesale changes at the beginning of his second administration in January 73, including even letting Henry Kissinger go, his famous national security advisor, everything began to unravel, in part because of a Republican judge, John Sirica, who suspected that the Watergate break-in did not stop at the seven who were found guilty. And he threw the book at them, compelling one of them to rat out his superiors. These revelations led to a set, the Senate to set up a select committee to study campaign irregularities in 72 by a 70 to nothing vote. The nation soon watched 300 hours of often breathtaking, breathtaking drama in the committee's televised hearings. Trying to save his own skin, White House counsel John Dean, knee-deep in the cover-up, began talking to committee investigators and, in effect, turned state's evidence with a 246-page statement. He was called to testify before the committee in June. Several others on the periphery of the president's inner circle were also coming clean to investigators about their involvement in perjury and the cover-up. Still, it was essentially Dean's words against the President's until July 13th. On that day, when asked, Alexander Butterfield, one of the few in the White House who knew about the taping system, 
told investigators of its existence. By this time, journalists and Senate investigators had turned up stories of other potentially criminal administration activities, using the IRS to, publish to punish political opponents, the illegal activities of the Palmers, including wiretapping, and fabricating documents to cast aspersions on the Kennedys, campaign finance shakedowns, subverting the civil service, and in the foreign, foreign policy realm, secretly bombing Cambodia and lying to the public about it. The ever-widening Watergate scandal from the break-ins of Cambodia reminds one of the failed White Water investigation that began over some financial matter in Arkansas that ended up in perjury charges against Bill Clinton that revolved around Monica Lewinsky's semen-stained dress, which, as we'll see, was the kind of the follow-up of the smoking gun of the Nixon case. I kind of a, maybe I shouldn't say smoking gun. Nixon's supporters, then and later, offered several defenses. Above all, that much of what Nixon had, been, had done had been done before by many presidents, and they had not faced impeachment. But an examination of the record suggests that while some presidents did a few of the things that Nixon did a lot of the time, and other presidents did some of the things Nixon did some of the time, none of them did all of the things that he did all of the time as far as we know. No one was taping Rutherford B. Hayes, for example. Rutherford B. Hayes was a president back <laughs> one of the forgotten ones in the 19th century. Another line of defense was that we were in war, and many of the illegal or extra-legal activities that Nixon took, he was taking to protect national security. No doubt, he believed that the nation was in peril if a left-wing, hippie-loving, Democrats like George McGovern, who ran against him in 72, became president. Of course, we were not legally at war. We've not been legally at war, by the way, speaking of the Constitution, since 1941. The only way we can become legally at war is when Congress declares it, which is not done since December 1841. So we've had a rather pacific bunch of years since 1941, right? No wars. Moreover, the Vietnam War, which he uses in excuse, was just about over in terms of U.S. participation. A variant of this theme was adopted by Nixon in his interview with David Frost, which was recently a movie, when he implied that when a president does anything to protect national security, he or she is behaving legally. Whatever the line of defense at the time, Nixon did not admit to anything. He said, quote, this is a quote, I took no part in, nor was I aware of, any subsequent efforts that may have been made to cover up Watergate. You heard all those quotes to cover up. He categorically refuted testimony that accused him of raising hush money, implicating the CIA in a break-in, and condoning illegal acts by White House operatives. He did say there was a thing called the plumbers, and they did some wiretapping, but that was necessary for national security. To show his good faith, he appointed a special prosecutor outside the Justice Department to look into the affair, the affair along with the Senate committee. The special prosecutor, Archibald Cox, was a Democrat armed with a $3 million budget, at that time a lot of money, and empowered to go on beyond Watergate into what John Mitchell later called, quote, the White House horrors. The White House called Cox's large staff the Cox Summers, as you might imagine. After the tape revelation, 
Both Cox and the head of the Senate committee, Senator Santa Urban, asked Nixon for nine specific dates. He refused, claiming executive privilege. When he refused, Cox and Urban obtained subpoenas from Sirica to obtain the, ta the tapes. This is the first time since 1807 that a congressional committee had taken such action. As for Cox, it was an interesting issue since he was independent, but appointed by the president and theoretically employed by the Justice Department. Like other presidents before and after him, Nixon insisted it would be impossible for a president to give and take confidential advice if he knew that these, those discussions would be made public contemporaneously. Further, he said, quote, the president is not subject to compulsory process from the courts, end of quote. Shades, this is for you American historians, shades of the action taken toward the Supreme Court by Andrew Jackson, in 1832, when he challenged the justices to enforce their ruling on a Native American case. Nixon also assured Senator Irving that he listened to the tapes, quote, and they are entirely consistent with what I know to be the truth, end of quote. He contended the tapes contained fragments and speculations and comments that only make sense if you hear all the tapes and read all the papers, and that'd be impossible. Finally, he argued, the sanctity of our balance of powers were at, were at stake. The sanctity was at stake. He could not compel the court to take certain actions, and the courts could not compel him to take certain actions. And now the case played out in the courts, where it will reside on and off for the next 12 months or so. While the two sides made their legal arguments, Nixon had the opportunity to resolve the problem by burying the tapes, which, after all, then were considered his private property. His Secretary of the Treasury called for, quote, a bonfire on the south lawn of the White House. Take them all out and burn them up. The majority of his advisors said, burn the tapes, they're yours. To be sure, the nation would have been outraged, but they argued he could write out the storm, as ultimately would be John Dean's words primarily against his. <coughs> Most likely, Nixon kept them because he thought within those tapes was what he would call exculp oh, I knew I should put that word down. Exculpatory. Exculpatory evidence. So he decided to keep the tapes. He had not permitted his personal lawyers to listen to them. I'm certain if he let his lawyers listen to them, they would have said, burn. Judge Sirica ruled in late August that Nixon should turn over the nine specific tapes requested to Cox. A U.S. Supreme a Court of Appeals supported Sirica 5 to 2. And they said that the investigators and the administration should get together, figuring out a way to handle these tapes so that we can excise national security. Nixon saw a larger national security issue. If he gave in, our enemies in Beijing and Moscow would conclude that he was a weakling. And they would act on that assumption internationally accordingly. They, by the way, thought that Watergate was an internal coup d'etat led by those in the establishment who opposed his detente with Russia and his opening to China. Of course, Russia and China never took our democracy or our constitution very seriously. The Soviets, in particular, had a wonderfully democratic constitution, more democratic than ours, which, of course, they ignored. <coughs> Confronting the Court of Appeals decision, the president tried a compromise approach. He would send a summary of the nine tapes to Justice Sirica, and one Democratic senator would have access to those tapes to see if those summaries were accurate. 
When Special Prosecutor Cox rejected the deal, as did Senator Irving, when Cox rejected the deal and had a big press conference to explain his position, Nixon ordered his Attorney General to fire Cox. The Attorney General refused to fire him and resigned himself. He said because Cox was supposed to have, quote, full authority to determine the issue of executive privilege, end of quote. The second in the command of Justice Department was said, fire Cox, and he resigned as well. This left it to the third, though, I don't know where they would have ended up if they kept on refusing down to some janitor in the Justice Department. But the third in command said, okay, I'll fire him. And that man was a man named Robert Bork. His name went down in history, not for that. Bork was famously rejected for a Supreme Court seat in 1987, not because of the firing, but because of his perceived extreme constitutional views. And as you listen to future Supreme Court nominees in your lifetime, you will hear the term, they're afraid of getting borked, which is what happened to Bork in 1987. It's rejected by the Senate. Cox's firing on October 20th, 1973, became known as the Saturday Night Massacre. And it produced an unprecedented public outpouring of hostility to the president, whose approval ratings went below Obama's. They went down to 17%. Members of Congress introduced scores of bills calling for impeachment investigations. The White House received more telegrams. Do you know what telegram is? <laughs> Did any of you ever get a telegram? No, no, no never, right? But the White House used to get telegrams. And they got more telegrams than ever in history. And Time Magazine, for the first time in its history, had an editorial, never had one before, calling for his resignation. Nixon was so immobilized and shocked by the reaction that he had to retreat to his bedroom one evening during the major crisis of the ongoing Yom Kippur War that was going on in the Middle East, which left his then Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger, in charge of the nation's foreign policy. He threatened the Soviets and played a game of nuclear chicken with them in a major Cold War crisis while Nixon was perhaps sleeping at all. Uh, I can't say categorically that Nixon was drinking heavily. His defenders say he had a few drinks that debilitated him and he could not handle alcohol. So he didn't like drink a lot of drinks, but he was out of it during this one of the two or three greatest Cold War crises and it wasn't run by the vice president. Where was the vice president? Isn't he? Our constitution says the vice president is in charge, right? Where was he? The vice president was next in command, Spiro T. Agnew. The vice president at that time was involved in a scandal that would lead to his unprecedented resignation later that fall. And in any event, he was generally ignored by Nixon throughout his presidency. Too bad Dick Cheney, who was on the White House staff, wasn't there to take command and invade the Soviet Union because they damn well had weapons of mass destruction. He wasn't the White House. I'm not, I didn't make that up. Agnew was such a lightweight that Nixon earlier had considered him impeachment insurance, since no one could imagine him as president. <laughs> Interestingly, when Michigan's own Gerald Ford became vice president, Nixon thought that he too served as insurance. As late as June 1974, in the Oval Office, he said to Governor Nelson Rockefeller, a Republican from New York, he said, can you imagine Gary Ford sitting in this chair? He turned out, of course, to be a plausible and solid president, indeed, with Rockefeller as his vice president. 
for the nation in an uproar, Nixon sent the requested tapes to Judge Sirica. But that wasn't the end of the story. Since they reported that, you know, we can't find two of the tapes. We only have seven of the nine. The other two don't exist. That wasn't as bad as when one of the tapes had an 18.5 minute gap in it that contained, in terms of the timing, pretty much certainly a crucial cover-up conversation. To this day, the gap mystery, which Nixon's chief of staff attributed to, quote, quote, a mysterious sinister force, end of quote. <laughs> to this day, the mystery remains unsolved. And even the best modern technology, up to last year, in fact, the new stuff came out, they still can't find out what was erased on the tapes. Moreover, the main figures in this story are almost all dead, so I don't think we'll ever find out. Most expert, experts believe that the gap was created purposefully. It's easy to believe, since on another occasion, when there was a dicta belt from a dicta phone machine, was subpoenaed and it was lost, Nixon said to an aide, quote, all we have to do is create another one, end of quote. Not only did Nixon turn the tapes over to Sirica, he appointed a new special prosecutor with even a more explicit independent position. But by February 74, this was too little and too late for the House of Representatives Judiciary Committee, which approved the formation of a committee to investigate the possibility of impeachment. The vote was by a straight party vote. One wonders what would have happened had the Republicans controlled one or both houses in 1973. Had the Democrats controlled the House in the late 1990s, Nixon would never have uh, Clinton would never have confronted impeachment, especially since his approval rating, including Monica Lewinsky, was much higher than Nixon's in February 74. The impeachment committee received a budget of one million, part of which was used to hire a staff of 106, among them a young Yale Law School graduate named Hillary Arado. First, but no one even knew what she was then, of course. One Nixon loyalist recently wrote a book emphasizing the Kennedy ties of many of the people on the prosecutor's staff. And he tossed out a new and I think clearly far-fetched thesis, conspiracy thesis, that the people were working explicitly to elect Teddy Kennedy president. And that's why they took Nixon down from the committee. Hillary and her colleagues took more testimony, poured over more tapes, the Senate committee's documents, FBI reports, materially, materially turned in by both, both independent prosecutors. After listening to the tapes, Jaworski, the new independent prosecutor, a conservative Democrat, Leon Jaworski, advised the White House to hire a new legal team, expert in criminal, not constitutional law. Jaworski found possible charges against the president that included, now just listen to this, involvement in the obstruction of justice, conspiracy to obstruct justice, conspiracy, conspiracy to misuse government agencies, cover-ups, illegal wiretaps, destruction of evidence, election fraud, forgery, perjury, money laundering, bribery, financial, mis financial misdealings, break-ins, the Houston plan, which is the secret plan, offers of clemency, providing political favors for contributions, for contributors, uh, failing to... Uh, failing to fulfill the oath of office, failure to answer subpoenas, interference of federal prosecutors, obstruction of congressional investigation, the bombing of Cambodia, illegal impounding of funds, etc. This is what the conservative, independent, democratic prosecutor says to the White House. He's going to face, he can face all of these charges on the basis of the evidence that was turned up 
February 1974. Returning to one of my earlier positions, many presidents engage and continue to engage in some of these practices. But I have yet to be convinced that any other president engaged in all of these practices, most of which were clearly illegal, many of which were unconstitutional, unless you buy the argument that they were all meant to protect national security, our chief executive's primary job. On the other hand, one of the president's, president's aides who pled guilty to a civil rights violation said, quote, I cannot in good conscience assert national security as a defense, end of quote. He gratuitously offered that comment. Through the first months of 74, the two processes continued, the investigations by the House Judiciary Committee and the independent prosecutor. The latter prosecutor convened the grand jury, which in March indicted seven of the president's closest aides, including former Attorney General John Mitchell, for participating in the cover-up. The grand jury named, we didn't know this at the time, Richard Nixon an unindicted co-conspirator. Several other Nixon associates were soon indicted for participating in the break-in at Ellsberg Psychiatrist's office. With these indictments, the president's position became more precarious. The final act had begun. The, judi the Judiciary Committee and the Independent Prosecutor subpoenaed 42 and 64 more tapes. Again, the president rejected the request, supplying instead edited transcripts, with many expletives deleted. Incidentally, when I interviewed Gerald Ford for another project, the former president, who was generally known as a straight shooter, said he was shocked by the expletives, which he claimed Nixon never used in conversations with him, which I found a little, I found a little hard to believe, but I didn't challenge President Ford, of course. When Judge Sirica rejected the transcript ideas as inadequate, the Nixon legal team appealed to the Supreme Court, bypassing other courts to speed up the case, and on May 31st, 74, the Supreme Court agreed to do so, and now Nixon and the nation awaits the decision of the Supreme Court. On July 8th, in the case of the United States versus Richard M. Nixon, the court listens to read arguments revolving around executive privilege, which we had heard before. The president emphasizes, the president's constitutional lawyer emphasizes executive privilege, national security, separation of powers. Leon Jaworski contended that executive privilege was extra-constitutional, it doesn't appear any place in the Constitution. And more important, even if that was a legitimate claim, the conspirator could not hide behind executive privilege to hide a crime. Apparently, Nixon was prepared to ignore the court's ruling against him, if it was a close one. Five to three, one of the uh, judges had accused himself. That would have been a doozy of a constitutional crisis. Instead, the ruling on July 24, 1974 was unanimous, 8-0, to zero, with four of those votes coming from Nixon appointees. This case was important because it was the first time the court ruled there was such a thing as executive privilege implied in the Constitution. But it did not apply in all the cases, especially those involving possible criminal this is a big deal. The court rules in 74, there is an implied executive privilege in the Constitution. Nixon, quite unhappily, as you might expect, accepted the decision and dispatched his staff to provide the prosecutor and the House Judiciary Committee with the requisition tapes. The committee was composed of 21 Democrats and 17 Republicans. 
Remember I mentioned what would happen if it was reversed? Who cleaned the house? They began their televised hearings to consider impeachment on July 24, 1974. By the end of the month, the committee had voted to impeach on the charge of obstruction of justice by a 27 to 11 count. Some Republicans joined. It then voted 28 to 10 on the abuse of power charge and 21 to 17 on a contempt of Congress charge. The committee rejected two other articles of impeachment, one on Cambodia and the other on Nixon's alleged tax evasion problems. With the Democrats in the majority in the House, and with some Republicans on the committee joining the Democrats on two or three of the articles of impeachment, it was a foregone conclusion that the House would impeach Richard Nixon. And most likely at that point, that the Senate could easily find the two-thirds vote to convict. Remember, we go to the House first and then to the Senate. The most likely, it was most likely the Senate would convict, became a certainty after the White House released finally the August, on August 5th the transcripts of the June 23rd, 1972 meeting between Haldeman and the President, where absolute proof of the cover-up was clear. This was the famous smoking gun tape. No wonder the President did not want to read it. Did not want to release it. After reading it, the 11 Republicans who voted against the obstruction of justice article announced they would vote they would change their votes, and now they would vote to impeach. We're coming close to the first removal of a president by the impeachment process in our national history. We had come close before with the impeachment of Andrew Johnson by the House in 68, 1868. And of course, since Nixon, we had the impeachment of Bill Clinton, the threatened impeachment of George Bush for his alleged, not so alleged, illegal wars and putative unconstitutional activities, and the threatened impeachment of Barack Obama for being a Kenyan communist community organizer who was somehow acorned into the presidency by the Antichrist. <laughs> <laughs> that was a, a partisan dig. Yes, yeah, some of you are shaking your heads. I know I'm out of step with the rest of the country. Back in 1974, however, the impeachment, and even more serious, this is the reason I mentioned that. Back in 74, impeachment, and even more serious, just the talk of impeachment, was a relative rarity in U.S. history. Now we hear it all the time. Many people have even suggested that the impeachment of Clinton was a payback by Republicans for the impeachment of Richard Nixon. He almost did. By the end of July, Nixon knew the end was near. He had talked off, on, on and off over the years about resigning. One factor that weighed heavily was financial. He told an aide in December 73, quote, you know, if I'm impeached, I'll be wiped out financially. No pension. And I owe a bunch of taxes. He also would lose Secret Service protection and all the other monuments that come with being an ex-president in good standing. When he finally left office, President Ford assigned 18 Secret Service agents and 20 assistants to assist Nixon in adjusting to his first six months as an ex-president. One of those assistants who went into exile with Nixon at San Clemente was... Diane Sawyer. This is full of trivia as well. <laughs> no, no, no. She doesn't talk about it much. She helped Nixon write his numbers uh, that came out in 78. Nixon uh, was a proud man, obviously, who insisted until his death that he had made some incorrect judgments, but he was playing hardball politics as he understood them, and he didn't want to bear the ignominy 
of being the only president who had ever been removed from office up to that point. He apparently made up his mind to resign before he was impeached on or about August 1, 1974. On that day, he sent his chief of staff, Alexander Hay, to see Vice President Ford with a list of possible things that Ford could do. One of them was that Ford would issue, issue him a pardon for any crime committed while he was president. Ford listened and then told Haig, uh, I'll get back to you soon. His aides were horrified that the vice president would, did not mix immediately the idea of a pardon on the spot. The next day he told Haig, no, 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 there's no chance of a pardon. And that day Nixon reversed course. See the relationship to the pardon, probably. This is August 2nd. And he told his chief of staff for a little while, let them impeach me. We'll fight it out to the end. Haig knew it would be a losing fight, the chief of staff and even thought the president might have been losing touch with reality. What was the president planning to do? Resist the inevitable in a White House defended by the military? Like some Latin American dying the presidential prowess? Or was he going to launch a war to save his presidency? Nixon never suggested as much as far as I know, but General Haig himself reports he was so concerned that he informed the US military to ignore any orders you got from President Nixon over the next few days. Now, Haig is something of a prevaricator, and he might have exaggerated his only his, his, his heroic role in saving the nation. Senator Barry Goldwater, a very staunch conservative Republican, warned Nixon that at most he might have 15 senators on his side. He felt, quote, there are only so many lives you can take, and now there has been one too many. Nixon should get his ass out of the White House today. End of quote, Barry Goldwood. On August 6, 1974, he decided to resign on August 9th. After being informed that if he resigned, the House Judiciary Committee would drop, drop the proceedings against him. This did not stop the entire House from accepting the committee report two weeks later by a vote of 412 to 3. In his ethical television address to the nation on August 8th, the evening of August 8th, he admitted to only some minor errors in judgment, but that he had, quote, put the interests of America first, end of quote, and had to resign to let the nation get on with the many urgent tasks confronting us. Most Americans breathed a sigh of relief when Gerald Ford took over at noon on April 9th, 1974, announcing, as many of you recall, and famous words, our great national nightmare was over, end of quote. Nixon had considered pardoning himself and his aides before he left office. He said, they toss in the anti-war protesters, too. He decided to leave it to Ford, who had not promised him anything as far as we know yet. Can you imagine the crisis that would have been brought about by his self-pardon? <laughs> the president could do that, right? There's no reason why he couldn't self-pardon. One month after Nixon resigned, Ford pardoned. He was moved by Nixon's frail physical and mental health. David Eisenhower, uh, Nixon's son-in-law, warned Ford that his father-in-law, quote, might go off the deep end, end of, end of quote. Further, the independent prosecutor favored a pardon, because he told Ford, if he's not going to be pardoned, I'm going to have to prosecute him in as many as 10 separate judicial procedures. And it would go on for a couple of years. Could he get a fair trial? Ford later wrote, quote, the hate had to be drained and the healing begun. 
No doubt the Republican Party would have been in trouble if Nixon had been in the headlines for the next two years. I don't know if that was part of Ford's calculation. It could have been. But the pardon, which was not popular, may have cost Ford the election in 1976. Ford lost the popular vote by 2.5% to Jimmy Carter. And 7% of those polled said the pardon was one of their major issues for voting for Carter. Was the pardon a complete pass for Nixon? Ford was disappointed when he couldn't get his lawyer, who was negotiating the pardon with Nixon, to get Nixon to say, yeah, I did it. So Ford consoled himself. He used to carry around while he was, uh, when anyone asked him a question, he carried around in the back pocket of this, a little bit on a Supreme Court decision of 1915, which said that, quote, a pardon carries with it an imputation of guilt, acceptance, a confession of it. So from Ford's perspective, even if he didn't confess, in fact, the pardon that he accepted meant that he confessed. Ford did not pardon the others who pled with him to do so. Seventeen Nixon associates were found guilty or pled guilty to crimes turned up during the 19 months of investigations. Nixon's closest aides, Bob Haldeman and Dart Ehrlichman, received terms from 2.5 to 8 years. The same term handed out to former Attorney General John Mitchell. In 1975, Nixon was called before a grand jury to testify about matters relating to these cases. He had been pardoned, so he couldn't take the Fifth Amendment. To this day, we don't know what he said. Grand jury testimony almost always is kept secret, except last month, a bunch of historians went, uh, went to court to try to get the grand jury testimony opened up. Nixon, without the Fifth Amendment, talking to the grand jury. And we, we want that. Historians want them. The case is now under appeal. So maybe we'll find out even more if we ever see the grand jury testimony. In the wake of Watergate, and the subsequent investigations of the FBI, the CIA, and military intelligence, their illegal and unconstitutional activities were made pretty clear secrets that these folks had done in military, CIA, FBI, violating our constitutional rights. Congress then enacted a host of new laws to protect us from future Watergates and related criminal activities. Among them were new campaign finance laws and fair election laws, procedures to guarantee the national ownership of presidential papers and tapes, in an independent prosecutor law, and legislation to curb presidential empowerments of funds approved by Congress. Alas, or that, no, I can't say alas, because that shows you I'm, not, I'm partisan. So, scratch alas. The Supreme Court recently destroyed the basis for those election reform laws, as you know, in the Citizens United decision, and especially, but not only George W. Bush, easily have violated the laws established to protect citizens from their intelligence agencies' exuberant search for radicals and dissenters. Many observers hailed Watergate as an objective lesson in how well our system worked. Perhaps. But absent Woodward and Bernstein, or the burglar who ratted out his bosses, or a Democratic uh, Congress. Maybe Nixon would have survived. In addition, had not, Nixon not proceeded with a cover-up, most likely his other abuses of power would not have come to light while he was president. And those many abuses 
were, for me, worse than, than the break-in and the cover-up. And more of, our threat, more of a threat to our democratic political system. I began by referring to Watergate as the greatest domestic political crisis since the Civil War. We may be close to another. First, President Obama. Many people did not correctly pursue the course to send our troops into Libya, albeit from the air. Who knows what the CIA was doing on the ground, but from the air. This is a big constitutional issue. And now we have one leading political candidate of the other party running for president who believes that it may be okay for states to secede, who would like to repeal the 16th and 17th Amendment, and he would like to have a new amendment that would make all of us have to wear cowboy boots. <laughs> <laughs> so what kind of crisis are we in now in our constitutional history? Where does Watergate fit in? I will leave that to you for the discussion, which I hope will be lively, which now follows. Thank you. Remember, a lot of the things that Nixon said to defend himself, national security, 
That's the definition of nationalist. David Frost asked him, literally, in that interview, what would happen if you specifically executed somebody who you didn't like? You know, you literally pulled the gun out and shot the person. Is that, is that okay, according to your definition? Nixon did not quite answer the question. These, these are the questions still going on. But a lot of the stuff that I talked about today, and I think contemporary allusions to questions about terrorism and radicals and cowed media. You know, just last week, Bill Keller of the most important paper in the United States apologized, not for the first time, but apologized in a big article for his role in, 19, in 2002, accepting some of the arguments which more Woodward and Bernstein types might have discovered were fraudulent or weak in banking the drugs of war. Press, separation of powers. Again, suppose, suppose it had been a Republican Congress. I think Nixon would, would, would have emerged fine. Suppose it had been a Democratic Congress, no one was going to impeach Bill Nixon. Bill Clinton. Oh, boy, he that. <laughs> yeah, a lot of my students, when I used to talk about this, would say, wasn't the same thing that Clinton did? No, it's not the same. Clinton lied. Clinton committed perjury. Clinton defamed the office. But it was no threat to the constitutional system. Say something 
paragraphs instead of the open ones. Yeah? How many presidents have you talked to? Uh, I tell you, I got a good story about that. Um, I talked to Gerald uh, Ford and Jimmy Carter, and my son gave a book I wrote to Bill Clinton, and they wrote back to me and thanked me for the book. That doesn't count. My son, my son. Anyway, so he was in the in Clinton's administration. Here's my story. Uh, my wife is much more emotional than I am, if you can believe it, about these kinds of things. Uh, the time I talked to Ford, the first time, was at Ann Arbor, I was at a conference. It was a cocktail party. And I'm talking to Ford with one other person, Ford and myself, and my wife's over there. So I said, excuse me, President Ford. You go over to my wife and say, come on over, you want to talk to President Ford. She never let her president. And she said, I'm not going to talk to him. He pardoned Nixon. I said, what's the chance that you're ever going to get a chance to talk to him? And she refused to talk. That, that's how badly she felt about it. Uh, I, I'll give you a, a, a similar, a different kind of story, but one of the guys in the period was George McGovern. George McGovern was the only guy who ran for president who had a PhD in history. New Cambridge has one, by the way. But McGovern at least got the nomination. I don't think Cambridge will get it this year. Cambridge, by the way, it's one story upon another. Cambridge, by the way, was a PhD from LSU. And somewhere in the early, late 60s, early 70s, his chair wrote a letter to Wayne State saying, do you have any jobs for this guy? Now think of the future, how the world would have been if King Rich had taken a job at Wayne State and not at Georgia State, where he ended up. He's my other story, George McGovern. George had a PhD in, in history. And he was the guy with the Democratic nomination in 72. The bumper stickers, by the way, appeared. Uh, after he lost everything but Massachusetts, don't play me on for Massachusetts. That was the 73 bumper sticker during Watergate. So McGovern is at, is at Wayne State, and, and um, he's giving a talk. And again, I'm early, there early with the cocktails talking to McGovern. And one of his problems was he was really dull as a candidate, and he had no feeling for his audience. So he spent 15 minutes telling my wife and I, my wife and me, uh, about his dissertation. And the archives in Montana, he wrote something on 1915 mines or something like that. And he had no understanding that we didn't know he's, he's a politician. He's looking at us. He wonder why he lost. He's looking at us describing various folders he looked at in, in his PhD dissertation, and he doesn't know no one cares. So that's why it's almost president. Yeah. Well, I think, I, I don't know what would have happened if, if Nixon had been in the, in, the, in the dock for 10 cases. That's what the prosecutor said. What would have been for the next, could we have gotten on with anything? I don't know. Uh, I, I think it was probably smart to pardon Nixon, by the way, almost died in that period. Uh, he had a bad case of phlebitis, which he had had before. And at one point, he was in the hospital and someone visited him. And uh, I forget whether it's the, the, uh, the high number of blood, blood pressure or the low number. Uh, you know, the, the good, whatever, whatever those, those two things are. And one of them got to zero, but it wasn't going to kill him. But he, that's how bad off he was. He, got, he really felt that I was going to die. And he was disconsolate, at least mentally. He might kill himself. That, that was kind of good. So, you've got to think about that. Well, why didn't Ford explain that in retrospect, like giving the pardon, Nixon was considered guilty? And that because of the 
length of the trials. Uh, he explained he wanted to get over. He, right. he didn't. He didn't use the pardon argument at the time because he didn't want to embarrass Nixon uh, and sound pig. And in fact, uh, he emerges as a as a kind of a a solid fellow uh, who turned out to be a better president than Nixon expected in terms of and the healing part. I, can you imagine all those things I mentioned that Nixon would have been on trial for, one after another? He couldn't combine them. They were separate charges. But we were never explained that. Well, not the way I said it, no. Right. No. He just explained what a pardon was and that it was better for us to, to move on. And you're right, Ralph, it did hurt him uh, in like, Because, in fact, if he explained all those crimes, then we would have said, well, why doesn't he go to trial? Right? Some people. I used to tell my classes when I was uh, born temperate and young and anti-Nixon person, uh, which I don't think I am now, at least some of the stuff I've written, some Nixon people say it's fair. But I used to tell my classes when I talked about this in the late 70s to answer your question, I wanted him to go on trial. And then he would put him in a federal position, uh, prison in Atlanta, that's where they would send all those people. And I was going to go down there on the train and stand outside the fence and go like this. Well, that's pretty visceral, right? Well, I got over it. But I literally, I didn't think of it. But you'd be out in the yard, you know, playing basketball. I don't think you play basketball. Lifting weights, no, I don't think you do that either. Well, the students don't take enough history, serious history in high school. And most of them get through college without taking any history at all. And certainly in elementary and junior and high school, you usually don't go in, you know, beyond World War II or Korea. Certainly don't get to Vietnam. And there was a time when most universities had history as a requirement, at least one. History is hard. You've got to remember things, and you've got to, usually in most history, at Wayne, you couldn't give uh, above a certain level, you couldn't give multiple choice exams. So you've got to write stuff and remember stuff. And read, read books, you know, like lots of books. Sometimes five or six books a semester. You know, not as funny as, as the Watergate lecture, perhaps. No, it was funny a little bit. I, no, that's a hard question. Historians have been bitching about this for, for 100 years, right? Because, because no one, you should know Watergate. All of you should have come in. When I was thinking about what to talk about tonight, I said, well, I could give a narrative, but that's kind of dry. I could like having this really heavy conversation about legal theory and various aspects of Watergate. And then I realized, like my students, most of you didn't know very much about Watergate at all, if you knew the word, unless you were in a class like Professor Hall's class. And, and some of you are from that class, you probably haven't gotten there yet, right? Yeah? I have a different kind of question. Going back to your uh, point that Nixon would be seen was kind of a moderate Republican. Yeah. Can you talk about his racial politics a little bit? Yeah. Because I yeah. think that's where he was less moderate, yeah. less liberal than Okay, good point. Uh, on his racial politics, on the tapes, he says bad things about black people. His uh, chief of staff later on, Ronald Reagan, Secretary of State Alexander Haig, was really a nutcase. Whenever Africa came up at the cabinet, he built he hit African drugs. So Nixon himself said that he thought that Africans in general, if not African Americans, are somewhat behind the red, uh, other races. However, in 1960, Nixon was a life member of the NAACP, which John Kennedy wasn't. And 
Nixon put through, uh, in a couple of years, he desegregated the South quietly. There were still, when he took office, there were a bunch of schools that were segregated. Now, he did things, he had, he, had a, he had a southern strategy. The Republican Party had turned southern. And so, rhetorically, he appealed to the South. Privately, he, 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 he didn't think African Americans or Hispanic Americans, and he, he didn't like most people who weren't Anglos, uh, were the same as white people. On the other hand, uh, he put through a minority small business program. Uh, he had a very famous program called the, Cetus, the Philadelphia Plan. Uh, George Schultz was the head of that. They became Secretary of State for Reagan. Uh, George Schultz, uh, the idea was to have, in effect, quotas, virtually quotas for government, uh, for minorities in government work. So that his record, his specific record, not his rhetoric, wasn't bad for a Republican moderate. It was in the Republican moderate tradition. Is that, uh, he wasn't a flaming, he, he, publicly, he didn't say, as, as Lyndon Johnson said, which brought tears to lots of people's eyes, when he said in 1965 on television, we shall overcome. He never said anything like that. On the other hand, Johnson didn't say, he said the schools very quickly. Yeah, he put through the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, and even better than segregated the schools. He was not good on race, he was not good on minorities, certainly. Oh. Yeah. I recall a photo of Nixon with Mao Zedong. Yeah. The uh, Great Wall. Yeah. Do you think his his uh, his communication with China at that time and what he did kind of helped out his reputation? Yeah. One of the things Nixon said after he resigned in his memoirs and anywhere listen, he said that what a day to be a footnote when the Americans recognized my great foreign policy record which included the opening to China, ending the Vietnam War, and the detente with the Soviet Union. Now, I would argue, I did argue in print, that yes, the opening to China was, in fact, really significant, but only a Republican could do that. Don Kennedy wanted to go to China, but he said, I can't go because uh, the right wing will attack me. It's pretty hard to attack Nixon over right did attack him to go to China. Detente fell apart. And we got screwed on a famous wheat deal for billions of dollars. And I think he could have entered the war in Vietnam in 69 rather than 73 for us, not for the Vietnamese. I think, 87. So I counterintuitively argue what I've written about him that, uh, that I thought his domestic policy was far more successful, from my perspective, than his foreign policy, which of course is the thing that he thought he was the greatest at. And certainly Henry Kissinger has been saying that ever since. He's still around, of course. Still with that thick accent. He hasn't learned to speak English. <laughs> You've heard Kissinger speak, right? Now, you're on TV. I don't understand. I have a, a friend, colleague, who came to the U.S. exactly the same time as Kissinger. And for 30 years, he's been speaking the Queen's English. Kissinger's brother speaks perfect English. You wonder if, he's, if it's an affect with Kissinger. He's a smart guy. He's as thick still. Uh, Any time for one more question? Yeah, go ahead. Um, you had uh, said, you talked about the way that Watergate pushes the Democratic Party to the left. And you see, you're trying to think of the Democratic Party pre and post Watergate. Could you talk a little more about that? Because well, when I think of a Johnson versus a Carter or a Clinton, Johnson did things that. At least I, I wasn't talking about Carter, I was talking about the Congress. 
Carter certainly was. That's why I said Nixon was the last liberal president, including Clinton and Carter, who were liberal presidents. So that's one thing. But the Democratic Party brought in a bunch of uh, rather liberal types in the election of 74. So you can imagine the election of 74, the by-election, was strongly antagonistic to the Republicans because of, of Nixon. So those guys hang on for a while. Uh, and in fact, Carter doesn't get along with them. Much the same way as Obama doesn't get along real well with a lot of the people on the left until recently in the Democratic Party. The exchange of the Democratic and the Republican Party in Congress was much, has been much longer than the more temporary change in the Democratic Party in 74. I mean, this is the part, this is the, the, the election which leads to the investigations of the FBI and the CIA, uh, which brings to light amazing things. For example, the CIA is prohibited by its charter from acting at home. And then we discovered, of course, it was acting at home. It's supposed to act only abroad. The FBI does stuff at home. Not that the FBI does stuff. It's not wonderful. But that was because those Democrats came in in 74. And they came in because of the country being fed up about Watergate. It wasn't quite the economy stupid, but it was, it was a big issue. And, and is this a, a short-term change then? Or, or, or do you no, you know, in this case, it's, I think it's a short-term okay. uh, that, the, that the Congress, by 1980, a lot of the left had, had left in the election of 1980. And of course, the Democrats lose the Congress for some of that period of the Reagan administration. They don't lose the House, they lose the Senate. They don't lose the House until 1994, when Dr. Newt Gingrich, formerly of Wayne State almost, uh, led, the, led the revolution. So, uh, hey, thanks so much for your questions. You allowed me to, uh, as a retired person, to get back to what I used to like to do. Thank you so much.